So this evening I'd like to reflect a little bit more around this theme of of happiness, around the theme of gladdening the mind, of contentment. And I'd like to begin by reading you a poem by a poet called Naomi Shihab Nye, called So Much Happiness. She says, it's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there is something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. The contentment, I think, is one of the most rare and precious gifts we can ever find in life. Contentment can feel so very, very hard to find. And yet in the moments that we glimpse it within our own hearts, we suddenly see how our whole world seems to be filled with a quality of ease. Now the discontented mind, as I already mentioned, it is something mostly we experience in those moments when we are reaching away from where we are. Discontentment we mostly experience when we're heroically striving to be something we're not and to have something we don't have. And in truth, happiness and contentment is sometimes no further away from us than the next breath, than opening our hearts to the moment that we're in and learning to how let go of this striving. Our life does not have to be perfect for us to find peace. If it did, we would be waiting a very long time. Our minds, our bodies, our hearts don't have to be perfect for us to find contentment. And our meditation certainly doesn't have to be perfect as a prerequisite for happiness and contentment. But contentment does ask us, I think, to let go, let things fall away. I think contentment asks us to let fall away this, this tendency to be leaning into the next moment, into where we're not with a sense of wanting. 
and contentment asks us to let go of this leaning away from where we are with resistance or with fear. As Siddhartha, in his early years of practice, undertook so many rigorous, brutal, ascetic practices as a way of trying to find a way to transcend the imperfect world, trying to find a way to, to subdue his body, to subdue his mind, to subdue life. And a very crucial turning point for Siddhartha was the point when he remembered a time when he was a small boy and sitting on a hillside looking down on a farmer plowing his fields. And he remembered in that moment how there had come upon him so unexpectedly this sublime, this very profound sense of of peace and contentment and joy and the, the feeling that there was nothing lacking, nothing missing in that moment. And that was the turning point that led Siddhartha really to place as the Buddha this practice really in the center, in the classroom of our lives rather than as somewhere apart from it. Now the first day of a retreat I do appreciate. It can be a really difficult day. And I think what really makes it difficult, I mean, apart from the fact that we often have so many expectations or ideas of how it should be and how we should be, what makes the first day so difficult is that we meet so directly all that seems so imperfect and there's nowhere to hide. I mean, if you were at home and you met what you met today, what would you do? You could go to the fridge or turn on the TV or go to sleep, phone a friend. And then, like that great program, eventually you run out of options. And we, we see on a retreat that there is nowhere to hide from our bodies and everything that's happening in our bodies. There's nowhere to hide from what is happening in our minds, with our roommates, with our meditation. And that's often the point when we start telling ourselves these stories of, of uh, disappointment. We tell ourselves that everything we've ever heard about how impossible meditation is, it's all true. You know, we tell ourselves that all the suspicions we've ever harbored about this path being grim and somber and depressing, that is all true. And then I think it's important to remember that the Buddha never ever taught that this is a path of misery leading to ultimate misery. He, he really did teach that this is a path of happiness leading to the highest happiness. And contrary to what we may believe or what we may have forgotten, the Buddha spoke so often of the joy and the contentment of the gladdened heart. He spoke of the happiness that is born of the collected mind, the calm heart. 
He spoke of the happiness found in concentration, in letting go. He spoke of the joy that is born of loving kindness and compassion, appreciation and equanimity. And he spoke of the joy of the liberated mind. And I just mentioned that it is this outcome and this direction that really encourages us, many of us, to practice for decades. Believe it or not, we don't do this because we sit on a cushion and get more and more unhappy and lead a more and more dysfunctional life. (laughs) This path does actually have an outcome and it does actually have a fruition. And much of it is really in this joy and the happiness and really the, the enormous vastness of really discovering this liberated heart. Now, of course, we're always very happy to hear about the possibilities of joy and the possibilities of liberation. And you know, part of us does so respond to that intuitively. And I know it is what draws many, many people to practice. But even so, we can still tend to be a little bit dualistic in our understanding and somehow have this idea that first we are obliged to suffer and that later on, if we suffer enough, we'll be happy. Or we have this idea that first we're somehow obligated to, to struggle and later on at some mysterious point we will find, have this great breakthrough and find contentment. Personally, I would suggest that it's far more helpful to ask ourselves what it would mean for us to have our practice unfold in a climate of happiness and in a climate of contentment to ask what it is really needed to allow our hearts and minds to be gladdened and almost to take into our practice the encouragement as a, as a koan, as a kind of reflection. I think this very, very important instruction of the Buddha where he says that in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation that in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. It is really, I think, in this practice, wise attention, not just attention, but really wise attention, is really placed in the beginning and in the center of the path of meditation and the path of deepening. Because it's said in this teaching, this practice, that Profound and transforming insight is really born of a calm and still mind. That compassion, our capacity to really reach out, to embrace sorrow and suffering, is born of a still and receptive mind and heart. I think we all know in our own experience that for us to be deeply touched by anything in this life, we need to be present and we need to be awake. 
it is clear in our experience that to, to listen to anything deeply, to see, to feel anything deeply, we need to be attentive. So really today, we, we actually have begun. We have begun breath by breath, step by step, moment to moment, to cultivate our capacity to be present and attentive. And as we do this, and as we continue to do this, it's so important to stay close to that reflection, that wise attention grows and deepens in a climate of happiness. Now probably the first thing that you've noticed today, or that has been sort of glaringly evident, is that it's really hard to be attentive. It's really hard to cultivate wise attention. In fact, what we often experience is we just don't want to be here. You know, we hear all this stuff about being the present moment, you know, be here now, and it all sounds good in theory, but in reality, a lot of the time, we just actually don't want to be here. There's a lot of other places we'd like to be. Past, future, the movies, you know, anywhere but here, actually. Now, this is actually not something, this is not a new insight. This is not a new understanding. I think throughout our lives, we encounter this truth over and over again, that there are many moments when we simply do not want to be where we are. I mean, first of all, I mean, we would see, and it's probably obvious, that we're really happy to be attentive to everything or many things that are pleasant. You know, we're happy to watch a beautiful sunset or listen to a lovely piece of music or watch a movie or enjoy a wonderful meal or be a per with a person that we care for a lot without ever wanting to be somewhere else. You notice in those moments, no one has to nag you. No one has to shout at you, be attentive, come back, you know, like I do through a sitting, you know. Just come back, come back, you know. Nobody has to do that in the midst of our relationship to things that are really pleasant. We do it perfectly well by ourselves. <laughs> and in fact, today in your meditation, I think if you'd experienced endless rapture, blissful moments, uplifting experiences, and amazing insights, we'd probably have to drag you out of the meditation hall this evening. We notice, too, that we pay attention reluctantly, but we pay attention to the unpleasant and the difficult and the painful, often when there's only no, no alternative when all our strategies for avoidance really have been exhausted and don't work. And I think we also see in our life and in our practice that when something is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which is actually a lot in life, that mostly our attention just seems to slide away, doesn't it? It drifts into fantasy, it drifts into daydream or to dullness. It just kind of slides over the surface. So actually, this is actually one of the first explorations in practice. What is really meant by wise attention? 
Because it's not an attention that is forced or insistent or, uh, you know, kind of aversive. What is wise attention? Well, often what is sometimes said in this tradition, this, this willingness to kind of, you know, happily pay attention to the pleasant, reluctantly pay attention to the unpleasant, that this is called like a childlike concentration without being insulting to children. But it's like being attracted by the trinkets, attracted by the baubles. But it's not the same necessarily as wise or mature attention. And that wise attention could really be defined as very simply as our willingness to attend to all things, the whole range of our experience, with equal respect. To meet the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral with an equal willingness. Now this actually, to find that willingness, to find that respect, I think it does involve a considerable change of attitude. And I, I think even to do this involves a considerable insight. But it is that change of attitude and that insight that determines whether this work that we do here, this practice that we do here, it determines whether it's going to be something that is just exhausting and negative or whether it's actually going to be something creative and liberating. Now, foreseeing does not create wise attention. It only creates tension and contraction. It is these qualities of ease and interest and investigation and happiness that really allows wise attention to unfold. So we have our breathing, we have mindfulness of breathing. And within our breathing, we really do begin to, it's almost like a kind of a microcosmic view of our life. You know, how we attend to this very simple reality of breathing. It's like, it's like a mirror, a microcosmic view of how we attend to so many things in our life. And we see within the body of our breathing, we actually are exploring what it means to gather and to collect ourselves. And I, I love this word, collectedness, which is one of the translations of, of mindfulness. We're collecting ourselves, collecting our attention from all these far-flung places, you know, of future and past and imagining and daydreaming and regret and remorse. We're learning to collect and to gather our attention in this moment. And within the body of our breathing, we are also exploring what it means to develop wise attention and what it does also mean to gladden our hearts, to gladden our minds. And really in the talk this evening, I'd, I'd like to explore some of the, the building blocks of the gladdened heart. Some of the kind of classical, the traditional qualities that are spoken of as being those which really serve to uplift, to calm, to bring contentment into our hearts. <laughs> 
Now, the first of these building blocks is actually generosity. Generosity of heart. Now, generosity as a quality of heart is really the cornerstone of a meditative life. It's not just about material generosity. It is about how we are with ourselves, how we are with other people. Generosity is sometimes defined as the gift of fearlessness and the gift of the Dharma. But all the teachings, you know, what is generosity really about? It is really about the willingness to let go. That's really the secret of generosity, isn't it? It's really the willingness not to hold on to anything. Now, I think this again, this is not some grand theory. If you look in your own experience, when you're holding on tightly to anything, contracted, gripping, a memory, a fear, a resentment, a demand, a judgment, anything at all, when you have surrounded that with gripping, with tightening, with holding, what does it do to you? Well, the result actually is not a mystery, and I think it's fairly universal truth. The result immediately is this sense (coughs) of contractedness, of being gripped by. You know, we don't just hold on to things. We are then held on to by things. It is like we are a kind of, of hos- a hostage or a, a sort of prisoner of anything at all that we cling to. And this is really what generosity of heart is speaking to. Really understanding that we learn in this practice about letting go and about releasing out, not out of should, but out of kindness and compassion. And in truth, I think in our own experience, we also know that every time we are able just to release that clinging, or that clinging can be released, there is a lightening and a gladdening of our heart and mind. So, you know, the question often arises, how are we generous to ourselves here on retreat? You know, and very often people come up with these solutions, you know. I'm going to be generous to myself on, my, on retreat, so I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to order a pizza, or I'm going to, you know, go to sleep. Um, you know, I'm just going to check out somehow. I don't think this is really a way of being generous to ourselves. The greatest way that we are generous to ourselves in our life, I think, is actually learning to let go of discontent. Learning to let go of that discontent, which is rooted in that heroic struggle to be what we are not and have what we are not, don't have. So actually, contentment, again, is not a destination. Contentment is a practice, it is an application of insight. So we learn to be contented with agitation. That's how it is, isn't it? 
willing to meet it. We learn to practice contentment with the grumpy mind, with the resentful mind. You know, in the Tibetan tradition, there's a, a story, and I, I have to tell you, it's a completely implausible story, but many Buddhist stories are completely implausible. Um, and it's, but it's a story that always makes me smile, because it, it's a story about this wealthy king who could never appreciate or enjoy or rest within what he had, which was a great deal. And he couldn't do that because he was always wanting something he didn't have. Now, the name of this king, as unlikely as it sounds when it's translated from the Tibetan, is King Hard to Please. He always makes me smile because I think of the countless moments I meet Madam Hard to Please, Queen Hard to Please in my own life, you know, just as I'm sure many of you, they're no strangers to you, King and Queen Hard to Please. It's kind of like... It's like this this mind that refuses to be with discomfort on any level. You notice that? <laughs> you know, we come on a retreat, you know, perhaps we expected the Hilton, it's kind of cold, you know, we got a foam slab, you know. Perhaps we come on a retreat and we expected this really blissful state and you get this really wayward mind that just wants to go to sleep. But again... Can you imagine anybody who just has, you know, endless streams of loveliness in their life? Thoughts, emotions, body sensations, people, events. I don't think so. So this is kind of a reality check practice. We meet the imperfect world. We meet it here. We meet it countless places in our life. We meet the imperfect world. And part of contentment is to give up this idealized endeavor to create the perfect out of that, which actually is flawed. It's within that imperfect world that we're asked to find a heart of balance, a heart of contentment, and to understand that it's not the fact that we don't get what we want. It's not the fact that we're not always the person that we want to be that really disturbs the balance of our heart. It is the wanting. It is the demanding. And this is what we're really learning to let go of, this this hungry creature out of kindness, out of compassion for ourselves. Kabir, he said this wonderful thing, he said, I said to this wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? Do you believe there is some place that will make the heart less thirsty? In that great absence you will find nothing. Enter into your own body, there you have a place to rest. Throw away the thought of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Hmm. 
Regeneriosity is also learning to let go of the suffering of preoccupation and obsession. And because I really think for most people this is the greatest torment, is the obsessive mind. You know, this mind that spins in these endless, endless, endless repetitive loops. Imagining that if we spin that circle one more time, you know, we're going to find the answer we're looking for, or we're going to squeeze the inside out that we haven't yet had, and all we do is actually spin it one more time. We can obsess, actually, about many things. And also, in this tradition, when I suppose to use the word obsession slightly differently than we do therapeutically, he said to think the same thought more than once is actually obsession. <coughs> we obsess, obsess about how things are, and we obsess about how things should be. And again, in the Tibetan tradition, there's a wonderful saying that says, preoccupations do not end until the moment we die, but they end when we put them down. That is their nature. Now, there is, of course, so much that we can think about, worry about, plan for, regret, obsess about. I think one of the, actually, this is you know, the most obvious insight, and yet sometimes it's the hardest one to get, does obsession make any difference to anything? In my experience, it doesn't make any difference at all, except to make us more unhappy. But does it actually affect anything? Does it make any changes? You know, does it make the world clearer or make things more secure or more certain? My experience is obsession really doesn't make any difference to anything, except to make the mind more tight and contracted. Sometimes it's just a habit. It's just a habit. It's a little bit like chewing gum. This is a metaphor I have for it. You know, you put a piece of gum in your mouth, uh, you know, for a few minutes pretty tasty. You know, now imagine if you had to keep chewing the same piece of gum for days. You know, and your jaws were aching. It's completely flavorless. And you're still chomping away. And, you know, then it might occur to you at some point, you know, I just take it out. <laughs> I could just take it out, which is a lot easier to do with a piece of gum than it is to do with this habit of the mind to spin in these circles. And I'm not at all suggesting that it's easy to stop obsessing. It is really a training of the mind, but it's a training of compassion. And it's a training that really happens moment to moment with that generosity of first seeing how the mind is spinning that circle one more time and actually really finding the willingness and the clarity to step out of the cycle that one time. It is such a training, but it is a training in compassion. It is a training of kindness because the obsessive mind has so is so bereft of gladness. In fact, it always carries, it seems to me, this undercurrent of, of anxiety and busyness. So with generosity, out of kindness and compassion, we learn to put the obsessions down again and again, just to lighten the load and the burden that they carry. We come back to just this one breath, just this one step, and when we do that sufficient times, 
we really do begin to sense this kind of taste. Just it might be so small, but just a small taste of gladness. The small taste of being able to rest in the moment. Just a small taste of contentment. Now, the gift of fearlessness is actually another aspect of generosity, externally and internally. To be a refuge for those who have no place of safety, to be a protector of those who have no protection, to be a friend to someone who has no companion. And that generosity, again, is so real of of moving a small creature out of harm's way or saying no to injustice. But this gift of fearlessness is also something that we offer to ourselves. If you look at the moments of disconnection in your life, the times when you just seem to disconnect and, and depart from where you are and from what is, Most CBC that anxiety, fear, and aversion are the proximate causes of disconnection in our life. You know, if somebody does something that offends us, and immediately, you know, we turn away. You know, something disturbing is happening in our body, and how immediately the tendency is to kind of push it down. You know, something disturbs us in the world and how immediately, you know, we're worried about it and we create a, a distance. We, we see all the time how aversion and fear are the proximate causes of disconnection. But it's not just outwardly. In truth, inwardly, there is so much that we can turn away from in ourselves. You know, all the thoughts, all the emotions, all the experiences that we condemn or judge or reject or dismiss in ourselves. And in truth, we can do it so often that we entirely forget what it means to be a friend to ourselves. What it means to protect the well-being of our own hearts. What it means to be a refuge for ourselves. So with generosity, actually, one of the primary aspects of generosity is to cultivate non-abandonment, a practice of non-abandonment. And our practice can be that expression of generosity to abandon nothing, the sound that comes, the wandering thought, the shuffling neighbor, it doesn't matter. We learn to attend and to be present. And the second building block of gladness is said to be, in Pali it is called mudita, or appreciative joy. It's a very important thread in the tapestry of gladness. In fact, mudita translates as a heart of gladness. In Zen, there's, I think, a most wonderful saying. It says, although I am in Kyoto when the cuckoo sings, I long to be in Kyoto. Appreciative joy is actually learning to delight in all that is well, all that is lovely, all that makes our hearts sing. 
Now, when we meet our aching back or our wayward mind or frustration or disappointment or doubt, we're sure in those moments that we are far from Kyoto. But the more indignant we become, the more insulted that we feel, the more tight and contracted we find ourselves. I think it's so easy, and I think, you know, particularly in this culture, it's so easy in life to focus only on that which is broken in ourselves, to focus only on that which is flawed or imperfect, inwardly or outwardly. And in doing that, gladness feels very, very far away. And it's replaced by, actually, aversion. When we focus only on that which is broken or imperfect, we become aversive, judgmental, and it suffocates gladness. Now, the broken in life, the flawed, the wounded in ourselves or in life certainly needs attention but it needs the attention of care and compassion, of goodwill, of gratitude, of sincerity. But to allow ourselves to feel joy, to know that which is well, is also part of mudita. Now, personally, I've always found in my own practice that nature is a tremendous ally in cultivating gladness just allowing ourselves to delight in the small miracles and moments of life and to be touched by the beauty around us, the, the bird in the sky or the sound in the, of the wind. And it's so important in this practice to learn to take the time to see and to listen wholeheartedly. And it's not a sacrifice of mindfulness. You know, sometimes I, I meet people in the practice, they say, oh, no, I better not look, you know, I might get distracted, you know, or, you know, I better not actually really, you know, appreciate the vastness of the sky or, you know, notice the flowers or notice the trees because somehow I won't be paying attention to what's going on in my mind or what's going on in my body. This is neurotic mindfulness, quite honestly. You know, this is not genuine mindfulness. You know, this, this is kind of this some sort of ideal idea of, you know, mindfulness being this uptight, wound up creature. It's kind of like totally devoid of happiness. You know, as if there's a virtue in in, in kind of misery. It's not a sacrifice of mindfulness. The very nature of mindfulness is to illuminate our world inwardly and outwardly, to allude, to bring into the light of awareness what has previously been shrouded in confusion or dullness or disconnection, to illuminate our world inwardly and outwardly. And that illumination can bring this tremendous sense of appreciation and delight. We are learning to awaken our capacity to be delighted. That's different than often conventional beliefs, you know, where we think I need this to make me happy or this has the power to make me unhappy or I need this to feel, you know, delighted and get rid of this. We are awakening our capacity to be delighted. That is what mindfulness does. 
And then it is after, it's not the grand events, the grand occasions, the grand sights and sounds. It's actually the small moments of connection, the smallest moments of connection, that actually are enfolded in that capacity to be delighted. Sometimes we learn to need to to celebrate blessings, to attend to all that is well, without getting schmutzy or sentimental about it. But actually, there is much that is well. It is not that the world is perfect, and it is not a way of ignoring the imperfect, but actually our capacity to meet and to bear the imperfect is made so much easier by our willingness to soften to relax and to release our demands that somehow life must be other than it is. And this is actually so easy to forget. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm one of those people who's, you know, morning is not really my best time of day, early mornings, you know. And, you know, it's like my partner says to me, you know, why, why do you, like, put out these schedules, you know, like that start, like at five o'clock in the morning, he says, you know, you, you can't even be civil to yourself at five o'clock in the morning, never mind anybody else, you know. And then I remember coming, you know, teaching once here with a, a friend of mine, and I got up, you know, and in sort of that morning space, you know, I'm not quite there, and he said to me, you know, did you wake up well this morning? And I said, yeah, actually, yeah. Did you have clothes to eat? Did you have food to eat? You know, are your family well? You know, and I kept nodding my head. You know, every question I asked myself, I asked me, I could find myself getting happier and happier. You know, it was suddenly this appreciation that actually, you know, these are living side by side, aren't they? All that is kind of broken and all that is well. And, and somehow that, that is actually the invitation of our life, not to veer to one and deny the other, not to hold to one and dismiss the other, but to learn, can we embrace this in this heart that is so receptive, so present, that can be so appreciative and celebrating of all that is lovely and also embracing of all that which is difficult. Because we really see when our heart is closed, the world feels very close to us too. When our heart is, is tired and dark, everything looks weary and dark. And our practice is learning to enliven our hearts, learning to enliven our capacity for receptivity. Again, Rumi he said this wonderful, he said, today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. The other great ally and great building block of gladness is what I've spoken about a number of times already, is spaciousness. Now, when I use that word, I, I think it's puzzling often for people because we know what spaciness is like. You know, we know what it's like to be kind of dull and fragmented and spaced out. But that's not what's meant by spaciousness. Spaciousness is a climate of mind 
that has room for everything. You know, I, I heard a monk once say that you know, his, his teacher in Thailand was dying, so he, he made this pilgrimage to Thailand to get this very special, you know, last teaching from his teacher. And when he got there, and he hoped it was going to be something really special, <laughs> and when he got there, his teacher said to him, know the difference between the mind and the activities of the mind. And he said when he first heard this, you know, he thought his teacher was already kind of a little loopy, you know, and he just couldn't figure out what this was. Know the difference between the mind and the activities of the mind. And then he realized this was actually a teaching of spaciousness. Now, if I give you some examples of this, when you walk into the room here, notice how your attention is immediately drawn to the things in the room. You know, the cushions, the curtains, the Buddha, you know, the microphone, the people. That's how your attention is really drawn to all the things in the room. Now, suppose you made a little bit of a shift and walked into the room and quite consciously focused on the space in the room. Now, the space in the room doesn't deny the things in the room. It's actually what allows the things in the room to be here. The space in the room doesn't really have any preferences. You know, it wouldn't mind if we had a circus performance in here or sat and meditated. But the space in the room actually provides the ground for everything to actually appear here. Now, another example of this is, is in listening... Again, when we listen, how often we're primed to find sounds. But as I've encouraged you a couple of times today, when we listen to silence, we actually see that the sounds arise and pass out of silence. And any musician will actually tell you that sound needs silence. And suppose instead of prowling or looking for a certain kind of sound, you actually rest in the silence and see the space and the silence between the sounds. And again, the silence has no preferences around what sounds appear. It is all there. Now suppose we did the same thing with our minds that instead of just attending to everything that appears in the mind, the different thoughts and images and memories, suppose we took a little sideways step or a little backward step and actually just really focused on the space of the mind, the awareness out of which the thoughts and images arise and into which they fall back again. Now, it's like the space in the mind, like the space in the room, like the silence, really is what makes it possible for everything to be there. But this actually really takes some intention because, you know, the things in the room, the sounds, the things that appear in the mind, this is where the drama is. This is where the events are, the big things that draw our attention. So it really takes some intention to really step back a little bit and tune in a little, this slightly more subtle level to the space, the silence, 
the awareness which holds everything that appears. It, you actually need, we actually need to calm down a little to notice this. We need to be less mesmerized and hypnotized by the events and the things that appear. But when we notice the space, we actually get that sense of what spaciousness is. And that spaciousness is not dependent on what appears. And it's, it's a tremendously trustworthy, calm, serene, gladdened place within our hearts and minds that can embrace everything. Now, as I mentioned this morning, we learn in our practice to find this marriage of spaciousness and wise attention. They go together. Wise attention leads to spaciousness. Spaciousness manifests itself in wise attention. And this is what we're really nurturing in the practice. And it is really what we begin in that to really get a taste of the gladdened heart, the gladdened mind, which is not a state, it's not a destination. It is a way of being with all things. It has the qualities of appreciative joy. It has the qualities of spaciousness. It has the qualities of wise attention. And it truly is a moment-to-moment cultivation. If we just have a couple of moments quietly together, and then we'll have a break. <laughs> 